This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Summit Racing's Al Noe with special guest, NHRA top fuel driver, Antron Brown. Here we go. I'm Al, joined by my good friend Antron Brown, the one and only. It's so good to have you in studio with us. Oh, Al, it's great to be on here. Tell us about your background. I think you have a fascinating background, how you got into racing. It's it's a great story. Well, the craziest part of it is, is that I was very fortunate. What I mean by fortunate is that my dad and uncle, they started drag racing at a young age. Like, you know, my grandpa came from humble beginnings, a really, you know, a poor family, a lot of siblings. And then each of those siblings became do-it-yourselfers. You know what I mean? Like my grandpa started a, a septic tank business and an excavating business back in the early 50s. And he grew it into a, a decent sized business where he grew up with nothing. Like he had to share his brother's pants. Like they go out, one brother had to go out because they couldn't do this because they didn't have that. But then my dad and mm-hmm. uncle, my grandpa gave my dad and uncle everything he wished he had. They started off with motorcycles. Like kids were riding pedaling bikes. My dad and uncle had the first Honda little motorcycles in America back then. Wow. You know what I mean? Running but down the street. That's so cool. And that's how they got started. My grandpa, the funniest deal is my grandpa bought my uncle. My dad had his first car and my dad had first a Dodge Dart, four-cylinder Dodge Dart. Didn't go fast, but I had to jacked up with the Kreger wheels on and everything else. Oh, yeah. And then it was a brand new car. Then he got my uncle. My uncle was the smartest one. Got a 62 Corvette. It was an eight-year-old vet for his first car. Nice. And my dad, my uncle's out there doing burnouts. My, and my dad goes, that's not fair. I want a muscle car too. So my grandpa, they sold that car off to a close relative and then bought my dad, like not brand new, about a year old, but it's brand new still, a 1968 Barracuda. Oh, nice. Small block car? I would imagine Small block, it was, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a 340. Yeah. 340. Yeah. Barracuda notchback, not the fastback, the notchback. Oh, yeah. So I remember like yesterday, because I got all the pictures of all the cars that were like my dream cars growing up. Well, lo and behold, what happened, the police officers brought my dad and uncle back because they were only just street racing it. They were racing against the police officer in our local town of Chesterfield back in the country of New Jersey. So the officer lost, so he arrested him? No, the officer said, the officer said goes, if you beat me, I'll let y'all go home. But if you can't beat me, I'm taking you back. And you're getting tickets, I'm telling your parents. No way. So, of course, my uncle and my dad both lost. <laughs> so then he brought them back. And then that's my grandpa got on him and go, look, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this the right way. And they said, we're going to build a race car. We're going to go drag racing. And that's what they did. They built a 72 Vega. And it made in the centerfold of the Super Shops magazine back in the day, the oh, Super Chevy magazine. Yeah, excellent. And uh, the Grump built their first engine, a small block Chevy engine. Wow. And then Bob Jenkins did the chassis work, who actually at the time built the top fuel dragster chassis for Joe Amato. Oh, wow. So out of Pennsylvania. And they had the first version of what you call a four link. It wasn't even a Vinny. Everybody had the slapper bars. Yeah. They had yeah. the first version of four link that Bob Jenkins designed underneath that Vega. And that Vega went high nine seconds, like nine eighties in a quarter mile at 140 plus miles an hour, normally aspirated race car. Wow. And what, what year was that? This is back in the late seventies. Wow. Late seventies stick shift with a Nash transmission. That's four speed little 355 small block Chevy blueprinted by, by the grump itself in the car. I was even, I was born in 76. So I was a baby when all this stuff was happening. And I remember like yesterday, just out in the garage, working on the cars with my dad and uncle. And they went from that to a bracket racing. Brogy built Roadster out of California back in 81. 
And I remember I called the yellow canary because it's all yellow. And, uh, and I just grew up around it, loving it. And that's how I got in drag racing, at the bracket racing, that watching my dad and uncle do it. Your children, I think, are in the racing as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, all, all my kids, from my daughter down to my son, Anson. My son, Anson, was the first one, junior dragster. And my daughter was older than him, but she did dance. And then we got her in the junior dragsters. And Excellent. now our youngest son, Adler, races too. So Anson Adler, this is Anson's last year of junior dragster racing. Yeah. And trust me. Do you have like a stacker for the juniors? Yes. The whole family? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Awesome. I have a stacker trailer, but now my son, he has taken a higher road where we're actually uh, building him a super comp dragster. So are you building a crazy mile an hour super comp or are you going to get him into it first? At, you know? No, we're actually, we're building a pretty serious engine because he's been racing juniors for a long time yeah, and we've been so racing a heads up class. So okay. he's acclimated with speed already. Yeah. So he went to the Frank College drag racing school last year. Oh he got yeah. a super comp license already. And he went to that school. He did six run, all six runs. Boom, boom, boom. Went right through and got a, and got a super nice. cop license. That's excellent. Frank is such a great teacher. Oh, I mean, he really is. It, his, you know, his whole staff is incredible. Yeah, Frank, his whole staff, great group of people. And uh, they went right through the school. And Frank is like, it was like a duck taking the water. Was what Frank's words, exact words were. So we're going to start him out. We're just going to short shift it, have a detune, and then go out. And we're going to do this, not super comp. We're going to do some all-out bracket racing, like okay. super pro locally. Oh yeah. And then he really wants to race. He really wants to race the super quick classes, the 450 classes. Oh yeah. So like the all to the eighth mile 450 stuff. Yeah. He really, really loves that. He loves it, and uh, he wants to get after his car. Will probably end up going like if we race it all out. It'll run 430s to the eighth mile. Ooh. Yeah, we're building up a big block 615, wow. yeah. a big block Chevy. And we did the whole Brodax top end kit from MBE from Matt Beneman. The engine will make about 1,350 horsepower all motor. So you can be wow. able to race some top dragster and get into the slower part of the field at the slower part of the fields because this car all out might should be able to run like some 660s, 670s all out. Yeah. Well, you guys aren't messing around, huh? You're getting right into it. No, well, dad might have to race it every once in a while while he yeah. goes off to college. Dad yeah. might have to spew a little bit in it. Well, you got to make sure it still runs okay, right? You got to I mean, make sure it's all right for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So when you went from uh, learning from your family and then getting into racing, pro stock motorcycle, and it's interesting to me, you went from pro stock motorcycle to top fuel. Yeah. I mean, just flip the light switch and go. See, it was a method out to my madness on all that stuff because when I grew up, they didn't have junior dragster racing. Okay. I grew up racing motocross. Ah. So I grew up with a love of motorcycles. Like yeah. two wheels. My dad raced the old Kawasaki H2s that were the two stroke 750s. Oh, those are like, those are like riding a light switch. Yes. They yeah. were like, they were like violent. He, he went 10 O's back in the day riding that Ooh. bike. This is back in the 70s. He was doing that. And then wow. for me, I always had the need for speed, but two wheels was my thing. But the reason why I always loved Top Fuel, I went to my first national event in 1986. Okay. And that was a race where Big Daddy flipped his car upside down. Oh, I and remember rotated. that. Remember oh, that? Yeah. Everybody remember. That's at the Summer Nationals, Englishtown, New Jersey, my hometown track. Yeah. So I saw that wow. in first person. But what makes the story so more unique? That race, my dad took me over to Big Daddy Don Garland's trailer, and I saw him in person, and he invited me in the pits, and I got to see his car up close and personal. That's so cool. You know what I mean? And you want know to make it makes the story even better? To this day, when I met Big Daddy, when I first was racing pro stock bike, he called out and remembered me as a kid. 
No kidding. And he goes, you are that kid in New Jersey that I let come and see my car and touch my car. I go, how do you remember? He goes, I don't let a lot of people do that, son. That's what he told me. No kidding. And that's how I remember. I saw he, the look in your eye. He thought, this yeah. kid's going to get hooked. I know it. Yeah. Come on in. Well, yeah. he remembered me because my, I had them big eyes. He's and the he guy. goes, I remember them eyes. And he goes, I remember the eyes. And he goes, I remember the dimples. He goes, you have not changed. <laughs> and I'm like, I, was, I said, big daddy. I said, I was 10 years old. He goes, you got the same smile and same eyes. Wow. So right there, when he let me get to that car, that's what started my dream of becoming a top fuel dragster racer. Because he literally looked at me and goes, son, you could be driving this car one day. And by him telling me that, that gave me that ray of hope to do what I'm doing today. So you knew then when you were 10, I'm going to drive a top fuel car. That's what I wanted to You do. just said, call my shot. I, I didn't know. I work through a pro stock motorcycle, whatever I'm going to do. But I'm getting there someday. I, I didn't, That's amazing. I didn't know how or why. But what makes it even funnier is, is because you got to remember, I was a kid. My family had a business, mm -hmm. right? Like we talked about, septic yep. tank business. Well, the way we judged people, which is right, this is how you judge them. If they came with the car on the record, or they got like a garage shop, they got a little bit of money. If they had an open bed trailer, oh, they might be just getting there. They got like a junkyard car. Mm -hmm. If they had an enclosed trailer, they big were time. like big time. Yeah. Like, you know, like if you had the <laughs> enclosed trailer, you were like, this is the team. Like these people, they're, they're serious racers. Yeah. They got the money. They're coming to race hard. So what I did was when my dad took me to that national event, I saw all the pros in semi trucks and trailers. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my dad like, dad, what do they do for a living? Like yeah. what kind of business? There must be millionaires, right? And my dad looked at me, and this is the first time I didn't know what a pro was. And my dad goes, son, they're professionals. They get paid to do this. And I was like this, shut up, stop, <laughs> shut the front door. Yeah. I'm like, they get paid to do this? I'm like, yeah. they literally, somebody pays them to race professionally. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. And I, when I'm telling you my dream started, I go, this is what I want to do. That's what I'm doing. This is what I got to do. That's cool. Because I know how hard we work digging trenches and pumping out septic tanks yeah. to go racing. And I said, these people get paid to do this. This is what I got to yeah. do. It beats digging ditches and pumping septic tanks, Oh, right? yes, absolutely. Yeah. All day long. Yeah. And you don't want to pump a grease trap at a restaurant. That's even horrible. Uh, worst worst <laughs> job I ever had in Antron was washing dishes at a country club in Cincinnati with two good friends of mine. I had to clean the area between the humongous cast iron stove and the wall one night. Oh. And I'm a bigger guy, and there's not a lot of space back there. It was awful. Wor worst job I ever had. So, yeah, I think... I think when all of us get a job that is just one of those jobs, it makes you appreciate having a job that you love and you love doing every day. Yes. And that's what you're doing now, which is incredible. Loving is it. not, not a day of work when you enjoy what you do. And, and don't get me wrong, racing, it can beat you down, but it teaches you how to get out yeah. and how to stay calm and even kilter mm -hmm. on how to handle things. Because other people don't see the light in the tunnel. They only see now. And they don't realize in life, there's no quick fixes. The way you fix it, you got to go through that turmoil to understand how to go to your next step of yeah. your life. It's like any sport. It teaches you teamwork, discipline, resilience, how to get through adversity. Like you said, yes. you go through a period of time, things aren't going well. You're not going around you want things. Are, that's the way it is, but you work out of it. But it's such a great lesson. And, it, and it's, I think for our fans and our audience, I got to believe they have to appreciate the fact that you wake up every day and it's not like, oh, I'm going to the finals every weekend and that's just the way no. it is. It's a lot of hard work, right? You're always rebuilding. You're always evolving. You know what I mean? Like if one person ever built the perfect race part, everybody will buy that one race part and, and nobody else will be in business. 
You yeah. know what I mean? And that's what competition is about. You're evolving to grow, get better, and you're getting yourself uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Everybody used to love carburetors. Yeah, right? right. You still sell a lot of carburetors, but now it's EFI. Yeah. And everybody's saying EFI kits, the fast kits, the Holly kits. Like now they're tuned to a laptop and they're always progressing. They're like, oh, you can make it self-tuned. Mm-hmm. And ain't self-tuning is always a better tune. You Remember when I mean? like a 500 horsepower streetcar was a big deal? Oh, it was, it was it was the thing. Like if you had a 500 horsepower streetcar, you were like the king. Yeah. And now it's like. We, we just did a project build, an LS twin turbo deal, all out of the Summit catalog, 1,200 horsepower. Yeah. Pulled it together, go, no big deal. But I, it's nowhere near what you guys do, which actually, uh, let's talk about top fuel. Okay. So typical top fuel engine. So I just mentioned that engine we built, neat little LS-based deal, super cool engine, made 1,200. Mm-hmm. You make more than that in a cylinder, right? One cylinder, <laughs> we make close to 1,500 horsepower. Wow. You know? It's it's pretty unique because my first started this deal in 08, we're around like eight to 9,000 horsepower. And now we have a true way to measure it and the speeds and stuff that we go, we, we put a torque shaft on it, a torque sensor on on actually the shaft that goes to the rear end. Oh, that's and, interesting. And uh, on Mike Green was the first one to do it. And on a 371 run in Reading, Pennsylvania testing, his car made 11,200 horsepower. So we never had one when we went like 66 wow. or 65. And we know that takes more horsepower because we tune it up a whole nother percent and a half to go that much quicker. So with that being said, we came up with a number where nobody's ever had it on it yet, but it's close to 12,000 horsepower now. Wow. That, that's yes. incredible. It, it's not right what nitro motors do. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a direct exact science. It's a science that makes no sense that we're still trying to wrap our head around. And we're lucky that they even run on nitro methane, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That the plugs last as long as they do. And then you can get through a full pass, right? Yes. So what's a, what's a typical race weekend like for you? You get to the racetrack, car gets unloaded. What happens before your first pass? Before the first pass, honestly, like you get to the racetrack, there's a lot of prep that goes in nail. Like before we even get to the track, you have two days of prep, at least of getting all the engine parts and pieces ready. Yeah. The pistons, the rods, they go on racks. You build racks that you can go the whole weekend. So we got four rounds of qualifying. And if you go to the finals, four rounds of race day. So you have to have four pistons and rod racks ready to go. Wow. You get what I mean? Yeah. So, so you got to have eight of those eight times eight, you know what I mean? You're talking about 64 piston and rod rack, like piston for, and rods for one weekend, for one weekend, ready to go Wow. with rings and everything on them and bearings. You get what I mean? Yeah. So that's a lot of money sitting there. And then you got to have at least eight sets of heads ready to go. So mm-hmm. that's 16 individual heads ready to go with valves, jetty, nozzling and everything in them yeah. ready to go. And then you have to have at least we have eight short blocks in case you tear up one on every run that you can go wow. to every round, but we don't go through that. Normally, we typically do. You put one brand new shorty in, and it's good for eight runs, and hopefully you can run that through the whole race weekend, but you'll have a runner ready to go. And what we mean by a runner, it'll be a block that you have at least four runs on that's already ran in that you can actually, if you have a problem, you can put that in and know you have no flaws. There's so y'all putting something that's brand new in the car. Oh, interesting. So we call it a runner, and we like to do that so you have something that's already true and tried that you put in and you know you can get laps on. So every round you are rods, pistons, cylinder heads. Rods, pistons, cylinder heads, and clutch. clutch. So you have, to yep. have, you have to have eight runs worth of clutch plates ready to go. Three new, three used with five floater plates 
for every run. Wow. And you replace all the floater plates every run. The floater plates, they get used for one run and they're garbage. And then the wow. new discs, we run three new, three used, because the three new ones that you run, they'll go back in circulation. Once you measure them, if they're past their tolerances, you'll regrind them and use them as your used disc for another plaque down the road. You know, so one typical run, you'll, you'll use about 6,500 bucks of parts per run. Just in parts. In parts. Like literally, because your crank has so much life on it, it's 5,500 yeah. bucks, but you'll average that about eight runs. So like, you know, every run you got used the eighth of its life. Sometimes yeah. it only lasts for five or six runs though too, but sometimes you might get 12 runs out of a crank. So it averages about eight runs a crank. Wow. You know, so. And How many we, gallons of nitro are you using a pass? In one pass of nitro, if you count the warm up, we'll go through about 20 gallons per run at about $42 a gallon now nitro costs us. 42 a gallon. Yeah, so you got over $800 worth of nitro. So pump gas one. prices, they're high, but they're not that bad. No, they're not bad. <laughs> especially 42 a gallon, yeah, wow. And, and especially when you think that we get 50 gallons to the mile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not 50 miles yeah. to the gallon, we get 50 yeah, gallons to the mile. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a rough ratio, you know? Isn't that that's crazy? A, that is wild. That's crazy. How about tires? When do you replace the rear slicks? Tires, when it gets hotter out, they last longer. But when it's cooler out, they tend to much, we could pull them apart because they'll chunk because the track will be so tight. Oh, yeah. So a typical tire now, we get a little longevity out of them. We can get about, I want to say we average probably three runs out of a set of tires. Okay. Like, like in the summertime, we can get six to eight runs. But then we have some runs we could put a new set of tires on and get one run out of them when it gets cooler to your cooler temps when it's like the track temps only like 70 or 60 degrees. It wants to pull the tires apart. So how did you get the opportunity to drive top fuel? How did that come about? That opportunity came through a gentleman, my first crew chief that I raced with named Lee Beard. Lee Beard with David Powers Racing. He was kind of not just a crew chief over there. He was like the general manager where he managed all the race teams because they had Hot Rod Fuller with Rob Flynn tuning that car yeah. and Lee tuned the Mako car. And Mako at the time was looking for a driver because Baysmore was out of the seat and he had an intern driver, David Baca, driving the race car to the end of the year. And we thought that he was going to be a shoe and to get the job because the car started going to final rounds and stuff like that. But then I was talking to Lee and uh, I was putting my hat in the, in the basket to get picked because there was numerous drivers that wanted that job because they had a really good race car and it ran well. And David Powers had a very great organization and operation. It's something that everybody wanted to be a part of. I wanted to be a part of it. And I was racing on the pro side bike side of it for the U.S. Army at the time. And Maco Tools was a was an associate sponsor. And John Torok who was leading the helm on the motorsport side for Maco, we've got talking and he goes, man, you'll be a perfect fit for you. Like, you know, they looked at me on the, on the business side of it mm -hmm. and the spokesperson side said, you'll be a great spokesperson, mm -hmm. but you never drove a fuel car. And that's where my out was coming out. And I was like, man, man, I just would always wanted to do. And I didn't give up on it then. And then I got to talk to David for a little bit. And I talked to Lee and Lee was really spearheading it because Lee goes, he worked with me over at DSR and he knew my work ethic, how I work how I put the hours in the shop. I understand it mechanically and that my willingness to learn and my eagerness to win, like I wanted to win. I was going to put the work in. So Lee went to bat for me and says, you got to trust me on this, David. You got to trust me and talk to Torok and goes, Antron Brown should be our driver. And he put all the chips on the table, yeah. his reputation on the table for me to come up. So I just had to show up and I had to show out. He opened I, the door for he you. He opened the door for me. That's awesome. And when I got the chance, Al, brother, I was like, it wasn't a way that I wasn't going to be successful. It wasn't going to be for lack of trying. I'm a competitor at nature and I don't like losing. And it's not that I don't like losing. 
they knew that I was going to put the work in to be successful. And that's where it came in. So your first championship came in what year? 2012 with Brian Karate and Mark Oswald to Helms. We should have won a championship 2009. It was the first year they did the countdown for the championship. Yeah, it was tough. And, and we lost it because of the new rule. Yeah. If we didn't have the countdown for the championship, we'd have been champions in 2009 and probably 2011 too. But uh, it's just what it was. And we had to regroup and, and learn a new format and figure out how to be successful the last six races of the year. In 2012, we almost fell short there because we lost first round the last two races of the year because of parts malfunctions and parts failure. And we still won it, but that was our first breakout year to win the championship. What was your first win like in Top Fuel? Do you oh. remember it? Do you remember, oh, the remember day like, like it was oh, yesterday? I remember yeah. like yesterday. It was in 2008, fourth race into the season, Houston, Texas, at David Power's hometown track, and we raced Larry Dixon in the final. And yeah, we, you're clicking it off like, yes. oh, yeah. <laughs> and and we, had, we had lane choice, and we picked the left lane because the left lane was a little bumpy early, but it was smoother down the track where the right lane, you can get after it early, but then you hit the bump, the transition, oh, and yeah. it makes you drop a hole. So you had to pick your poison. So you, we had to hit the track easy early, but then we came on the back half. And I remember we raced Dixon. We ran a 62. I think we ran a 462 because we ran a quarter mile. 462 in 2008, we ran a 462, and Dixon ran like a 463, and he had me off the tree by a little bit. I had like a 062 on the tree, and he was 055 on the tree or something like that. Ooh, that was a close and, race. And uh, we ran him down, and we passed him on the big and then beat him by like 14 thousandths of a second or something wow. like that. I, I remember like yesterday, and he got out, and he was like, nobody had been close to that. It might have been like 8 thousandths of a second or 6 thousandths of a second, because he got out. I remember the race being really, really close. And he was bummed because he did not want to lose to a rookie. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I got and we got him. And then uh, it, and it, it was just an awesome experience because he was the best of the best. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Him and Tony Schumacher at the time, they were the ones you want to beat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Dixon was a multi-time champion. Tony was like a seven-time world champion. And uh, I beat him. And my second race that we won that year, I beat Tony in the final round. So, wow. so, so it was pretty spectacular to beat the wow. best of the best, our first deal out. And we qualified number one that year at our first race out in Pomona, California. That's incredible. It, it was sweet. It was, we ran, I remember like yesterday, we ran a 449. We, we went under the fifties, a 449, I got 331. First time out. First time out. And everybody's like, this wow. team is for real. Yeah. No kidding. And we went to the semifinals th that race too. Man, that's incredible. We had a really good team. Really, really good team. How do you mentally prepare when you're getting in the car? and you're ready to make a pass, mm -hmm. and you're running through the checklist in your head, all the normal things, can you walk us through that? You know what the checklist is when I get in the car? First thing I get in is once I get strapped in, I go through all my controls and make sure they're in the right place. Make sure the switches are down and somebody leave one on. Make sure the reverse lever is pulled back so it's in forward and not reverse. I check the brakes, make sure they pump up good. I check the clutch pedal, make sure it's got the proper feel. I check the throttle pedal to make sure the throttle stops on for the burnout. I just go through things in my head. And after I get to that moment where I've got all my normal checks and balance in my area to make sure nothing can go wrong in the area where I sit, then what I try to do, I take a moment to calm myself and just close the eyes, take the breath in, relax, and shut all the outside world off. The business owner mind is shut down. I'm not thinking about bills. I'm not thinking about logistics. I'm not thinking about none of that stuff. That stuff is shut down. Now I'm, I'm going into AB, the driver where I'm blanking my mind out. Because when we drive these race cars, we respond on reaction. No thinking about what to do. You already know what to do because mm -hmm. you've done it so much and you train for it week in and week out. 
where you got to let your instincts take over. Because if you think about it, you're going to make a mistake and you're going to be behind the race car because you're in a rocket ship that goes from zero to 100 in 0.8 of a second. You get what I mean? So 0.8, there's no, oh, I got to steer left. You do that, you're in the wall. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or you're in the other lane. So for me, it's my moment to shut everything down and blank my mind out where I come into the instinctive state of just responding. The body just knows what to do. It reacts. That's when you're in your fastest state. Mm -hmm. You don't go yellow light comes on, go. You go yellow comes on, foot automatically goes down and the brake lets go. It does it automatically. When you think, then your 050 light turns into an 080 light and you're late. You know, so for me, it's to get into that zone to shut everything off. So once you make your first run, come back to the pits, what's your job in the pits then at that point? First thing I do is I hop out the car, go and take my suit off, get my normal attire on like I'm wearing right now, like pit, this like my pit wear right here. And, and then I go out there and then I'll do the fuel in the race car. I'll report the fuel in the car. Then I go over everything and make sure my fresh air bottles turned off. Make sure Mark got the computer chip, go through everything in the driver's compartment where I'm at to make sure everything is in its place where it needs to be. Seatbelts are loose, they're tucked back so I can get in the car again for the next round. And then after I get that done, then I come in, I usually grab a beverage drink, like a water, get me like a snack, like an apple or orange, slice it up, go in the crew chief lounge, start going over videotape of the run with okay. the crew chiefs. They already download the car. They're going through the run, analyze it, Brian and Mark looking at it. Then Brad's coming in with a report from the car, tell him what he sees out there. And then Mark will go down. I'll go down with Mark sometimes. We'll go over the parts that came out the car, like the pistons, the rods, the rod bearings. And he'll mic them and I'll jot them down on our chart. That's like kind of like our report card, like how hard we pressed on the yeah, engine. Kind of the postmortem. Right? Yeah, like yeah. what happened? Like did it drop a hole? Did it nip a ring? Did it scuff a piston? Then we'll make, he'll make the adjustments to the engine. Then we'll get done with that. Then I'll go up there and review more film with Brian, who's the lead. And he says, AB, the car got over here in the groove a little bit. Next time I want you over here to the left side a little bit more. Or how did this feel right here? Did you feel anything in the car? And I'll go over and say, I felt it whine, felt a little lean here. It was pulling here. It felt like it dropped the hole, but it didn't really drop a hole. It was just going through the clutch here. And he'll tell me what's really what's happening. So then my information, see if it jives up with the computer data. And then he'll make adjustments from there. And then we'll go on to the next deal where he'll go, all right, I want 88% this run. So I might have to adjust the nitro and change the nitro. Okay. Hey, give this notepad. Here's a note for the guys. Oh, we want 95 on the left side, 98 on the left, on the right side for head gaskets. And I want 40 mm. over on the blower okay. or whatever he calls out. And I'll take that out there with me and give it to the guys. So it's kind of like the coach is putting out the stuff that's got to go on in the pits and what we're going to do next. And that's pretty much what goes on. And then between that, when I get free time, then I'm after I do the fuel, I'm at the ropes with the fans or I'm back into our Maco Lucas oil hospitality schmoozing with some of our we're our special VIP guests, whether they're DBRs or customers of all of our different sponsors that we have on our car. And, and that's what we do. And then uh, through all that, then the warm up starts and then we'll go up the start line. That whole cycle starts all over again. You mentioned thinking back through the run and talking with Brian about it, what happens in the run. How hard is it since it happens so fast? Can you replay a run? Is it almost like slow motion for you because you've done it for so long? And you just know, like at different points in the run, what's going on. Uh, when I first started, first run I make, I couldn't tell you one thing that happened. It happened in spurts. It was like blackouts. Like I saw the tree, then I was at 150 foot mark. Then I was at the finish line. Couldn't tell you nothing in between. But now by driving it so long and so much, I can come talk to you for 20 minutes. I can tell you a bump where I fell down the track. 
Wow. I said, hey, man, I felt a bump at like 70 feet. Then I got to 80 feet. I felt the groove where it sucked the car over to the left and I had to bring it back. Hey, I felt the motor wind here. I, I heard the blower winding higher like it was burning up. It wasn't making no boost. Mm. And I felt the engine go flat here. And I felt us pause here where you stop the clutch at, at 220 feet. So now it comes to the point where I could tell you in 3.7 seconds going down a racetrack, it feels like it was a turning for me because when I hit the gas, everything goes like slow-mo. There's a the tree. There's a 60-foot car. Oh, I felt the car bump this way. Oh, I felt it almost spin the tires. I felt it come up. And it was like starting to try to rattle a little bit. Then it came back down. I could tell you in detail of everything going down track. But when I first did it, I could tell you one thing. It's hard to comprehend how you can, you can absorb all that. It's, that's wild. I think the best way to explain it, how I explained it to other people before, it's numerous people have been in car accidents. If you've ever been in a car accident, you know how the car accident happens really fast, but yet when it happens, it feels like everything's happening in slow motion. You know what I mean? So yeah. all that stuff, that's what it feels like. That's exactly what it feels like when you step on the gas, that type of trauma. Let's talk about a pass in the car. What's it feel like? I've had other, I've talked to, <laughs> I've talked to other people about it and they're like, well, imagine getting shot out of a cannon that's got 5,000 pounds of dynamite in it. The best way I can <clears> tell <throat> you is you're sitting on a starting line, okay? You're sitting there, nothing else explains what we do because nothing else does what we do. So for one, knock it out. It's not being shot out of a cannon because it's not like being shot out of a cannon. We shot out of a cannon, it goes poof, and then it decels. We don't do that. When we hit the gas pedal, we'll hit 3.8 Gs on the starting line. So you go, boom. And then right when you get it, you're like, okay, well, this just, the ride should start decelling. I should come back down, right? No, you go, boom. And then you go out there about after a second and you come out the jiggle. We give it more power, more clutch. Then the car's at 3.8 Gs. Then it goes, boom. It takes you to four, over four Gs. So it goes out, then it goes even harder. Then wow. when you get to 300 feet, you get more clutch and everything's coming at it even harder and more power's coming at it, and the car takes off even harder. And then you go from like 4.2 Gs to like 4.8 Gs. Then when the clutch finally comes one to one, it does about 550 feet on a good track, and you'll feel it go, you'll hear like a ting in the bell housing. And the car will go from being arched like this to going like this, and mm. it snaps up, and you'll feel in your lower back, and it'll go, boom, like this. And it push you, you literally go, Poom, like this really pushes your chest in, but you come up like this. So you go poom, like that. And when it does that, you're pulling six G's. So you're pulling six wow. G's at when you're doing right at 295 to 300 miles an hour, you're pulling six G's. So what I'm telling you is you're taking off harder when you're doing 290 mile an hour than you did from zero to 100 miles an hour. That's amazing. You follow me? Yeah. And then oh, it yeah. Goes, boom. Then it's the G more meter, intense as you're yes. going down the track. And then the G wow. meter finally starts decelling. So you go, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And it's just like, nothing does it. Nothing does it. How like many it does G's it. on deceleration? Decel, we literally, when we're going through the traps, we're at a little bit over a positive G because the G meter will fall from six to like literally like a G to a G and a quarter when we're going through the deal because it's deceling now because it went one to one. It's got its limit. It's finally going out. Then when you actually hit the chutes, it'll snap you back and you'll go a negative. You'll actually go from a positive G to a negative three G's. So you have a four G swing when you hit the parachute. Wow. Man, that's a ride. That's awesome, yeah. Antron. It'll hit you hard. Well, Antron, thank you so much for joining us today. We don't want to hold you up. Pleasure right, to see you. Appreciate thank you being you. here. We're out.
This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.